Hi there and welcome to another episode of Sensational, the special educational needs podcast, which is brought to you by Withersight Group in partnership with the ADHD Foundation Neurodiversity Charity. My name is Claire, Events Manager for Withersight Group, and I'm really pleased to be bringing you today's episode titled A Pathway to Positive Behaviour. It's something that is very important to us at Withersight Group and the ADHD Foundation, and that is changing the opinions that people have and stigmas that may surround behaviour and neurodiversity. So we hope that with this podcast to empower families with positive understanding around why behaviour sometimes presents the way it does, and also offer some practical strategies of support that you can use at home. So now to guide us through our topic today, we have not one but two fantastic expert speakers and they are Steve Howell, Lead Practitioner for Withersack Group and Emma Weaver, Deputy CEO of the ADHD Foundation Neurodiversity Charity, a fantastic charity working across the country to support parents, carers and professionals. So after my lengthy introduction there, would you guys like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Yeah, I'd love to. Hi, everybody. My name's Emma Weaver. As Claire said, I'm the Deputy CEO at the ADHD Foundation Neurodiversity Charity. We are a national charity and we support anybody really that wants to learn and understand neurodiverse conditions. So the likes of ADHD, autistic spectrum condition, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia. Our job, I suppose, is to help people understand it and see the strengths that come from those conditions and how we can turn those strengths into kind of positive outcomes for people with neurodevelopmental conditions. So we work across the country and I think I've got the best job in the world because I get to meet lots of lovely people and work with lots of different uh, families, professionals and young people and people uh, with ADHD and other neurodevelopmental conditions themselves as well. Now over to you, Steve. Lovely. Um, Yeah, nice to be here. So my name's Steve Howell. I'm a lead practitioner at the Witherslack Group. I work for a team called the Safeguarding Behaviour and Inclusion Team. So we work nationally across our schools and our children's homes, working with uh, the senior leadership teams, the homes managers, working with some of the... um, children with more complex needs, more um, needs that that the staff are struggling to support with. Uh, So we go into the homes and try and find different strategies, uh, find different ways of um, working with those young people to um, improve quality of life for them. Okay, thanks, Steve. Okay, so we've got a lot to get through today. So without further ado, let's get going with our questions. Um, So in our everyday life, we have probably all heard people talk about the naughty boy or the girl that's a daydreamer or has poor concentration. So just to kick off our podcast, when it comes to neurodiverse children and young people, what impact do you think the use of this language has and what does it mean for our community? I think it's a really good one to start with. I think the kind of stigma of um, of yeah. neurodevelopmental conditions often goes ahead of them. And the language um, for such a long time has been so negative and very deficit dri- driven, very kind of centered around what people with neurodevelopmental conditions can't do. Um, and I think what we're trying to do and what the neurodiversity movement is doing in particular for the community is turning that on its head a little bit and actually working with people with neurodevelopmental conditions. And rather than seeing it as poor concentration or labeling it as the daydreamer, it's actually understanding the traits of the likes of inattentive ADHD, what that might look like, but also what the strengths a person with inattentive ADHD can bring. We know that people with it, with ADHD can be incredibly creative, imaginative, entrepreneurial in lots of ways Um, and I think it's about changing the narrative a little bit and moving away from those negative languages uh, and negative words that we're using and and looking more at that strengths-based approach because we're not going to get anywhere with the negatives Uh, 
and it's about empowering people to to understand themselves. Yeah, the the very um, the very emotive words they, they they drive a lot of emotion in people. It creates bias with with the um, with the children that we're working with, and like, like Emma said, those labels can stay with children for for an awful long time. You know, oh, he's the naughty boy. Oh, we're getting the we're getting the naught the naughty child in 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 next year's cohort, and and all of these kind of things. And actually, it takes away from the fact that these behaviours are communicating something. That everything that we see with with our young people, it's it's communication. So by labelling someone as naughty, um, creates a bias within us where we don't actually want to seek what that behaviour is communicating. We just see that as as the young person. Fantastic. Okay, so we'll move on to our next question now. So. In order to change perceptions around behaviour, we need to understand the reasons behind why our children behave the way they do sometimes. And and is, as someone who isn't an expert myself, and I, I do say that quite often, um, I've found listening to the likes of you guys where you've offered simple explanations of the theory or science behind why our kids do the things they do sometimes to be really beneficial to help my understanding. So can you give us some short and simple explanations here around why our children might have difficulty with regulating their behaviour? Emma, now one that I've found really useful before, I've heard you talk about our chimp brains yeah, I talk about the chimp brain everywhere I go, uh, Claire. I think. <laughs> I think people people see me, and that's the first thing they I see. I've tried to explain it to my daughters, but I definitely do not explain it. In, you need to come around to my house and explain it to my daughters. That's what we need yeah. to organise. Okay. <laughs> I will. It's a date, uh, but it's, it, is, it is the best way of helping us to understand. I think all of us have an inner chimp. Every single one of us, and something that I kind of constantly refer to is the fact that we have evolved from. The chimp, you know, back in the day, you know, and when we think about evolutionary process and things like that, we, we've all got an inner chimp. And the inner, inner chimp is the primal part of us. It's very, very much driven by our impulse, by our fight, flight or freeze. It's emotionally driven. And then we've got kind of the thinking part of the brain. And the thinking part of the brain is the bit that sits on top and it's the bit that keeps the chimp in check. So when the chimp's getting a little bit stressed or when our primal reactions to things, so maybe our environments are a bit overwhelming or there's something that we don't understand or finding difficult to communicate, our chimps might become a little bit over-responsive to that. And the kind of top part of the brain's job is to kind of help the chimp to stay calm, regulate and manage all of those big feelings. But when it comes to ADHD, in particular what we know is the top part of the brain particularly what we call the prefrontal cortex it's weak in its development so it's it's smaller than the chimp for some people which means that sometimes the chimp can take over a little bit which means and we refer to the to the saying and, and it, we've heard it in lo- lots of di- lots of different practices it, what happens is often the logical brain flips so we flip the lid which then exposes those lower brain regions which is that chimp idea and the reason for that is developmental it's all to do with the neurobiology around neurodevelopmental conditions there are certain delays or um, in in certain areas or brain regions which means that other areas um, maybe are are more heightened and we know that the kind of uh, amygdala which is the chimp part of the brain is heightened often for people with neurodevelopmental conditions fantastic that was a very good explanation emma um, i can tell you've done that before um steve have you got anything to add there at all No, I mean, I mean, I can't really beat the the chimp brain analogy, really. <laughs> You're can start I be? Because um, it, 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 
Yeah, well, it, it 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 sums it up really, and I think we as adults ultimately behavior is all behavior is functional. You know, even even with with us adults, we you know we feel cold. We put we put a we put a coat on. That that happens, and it's the same with our with our young people. The difference is that um, some of our uh, neurodiverse children, some of our children who have experienced trauma, that that ability to understand and know what what comes next is really difficult so yes they might be able to verbalize how they're feeling but what does that actually internally feel for them and um, they might say um i'm in pain but actually what what is going on for that young person and actually the ability to think and understand what's happening within within their body um it, it, it's not there that the, there's the, there's um developmental issues there um as part of their I mean, we mentioned trauma. We're talking about neurodiversity. So actually, that ability to uh, to know how to cope and how to tolerate those experiences that they're feeling in that environment means that they've got to display it in other ways. So actually, um, you know, those challenging behaviours that we're talking about or behaviours of concern, there's a reason for that. And we as adults understand those feelings. Some of the children that we're working with don't understand those feelings, so we've got to support them to actually help them understand what are they feeling, how can we manage and support that young person with those emotions. Okay. Okay, so thanks ever so much for those um, answers there. We'll move on to our next question now. So um, quite often I speak to parents and carers who are left feeling isolated by situations that they are presented with on a day-to-day basis. So my next question aims to hopefully highlight that there are many families facing similar ups and downs, which hopefully might help anyone feeling alone at this time. So can you offer some examples of common challenges when it comes to behaviour and how these may present? I was speaking to a family of a young boy who they're really struggling with at home. He's not going to bed on time. They feel stuck with without much support around them. He's not going to bed on time. They're experiencing these meltdowns, which kind of comes in aggressive behaviour towards the parents. Um, and... So, so I was just just in conversation, and this was personal experience. This wasn't actually at work when, that I was having this conversation. I just said, "So, what, what's what's he like at school?" Oh, well, school is saying that he's absolutely fantastic, and he just gets on with his work, and he's quiet. and And I think what that shows is what we call masking. You know, he's putting so much effort in to be almost seen as neurotypical within within the, within the school environment because that's what we we expect that actually he, he puts he puts this mask on so he he appears to be coping he appears to be tolerating all of the strange kind of experiences and sense sensory overload that's going on in a school but that mask has got to come off at some point because it, it it's hard work for that for that young person so where best to do it but in a place of safety in a place of yeah. predictability and so I, th- I think that 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 example is is probably what um, a lot of parents will, yeah. will experience. I experienced it myself as a as a as a brother um, yeah. with with a with a brother who's got um, who's autistic, you know, and and having to almost almost justify that actually it's really difficult at home to a school can be really difficult because. Yeah. They're not experiencing it, so I think I think that 
that that's that's a challenge, and that that's something that we as a as schools need to overcome. That's not for the young person to adapt to our environment. That's about us adapting the environment to meet the needs of that young person. And you know, Emma spoke about the fight, flight, or freeze. Those meltdowns that those children have at home, they can come in all sorts of. They can look yeah. very different. You know, they can look like they're um, they're physically aggressive toward towards their parents but it can also look as almost demand avoidance it can be withdrawn just go into the room and just shut shutting down so yeah I, I think I, almost one of the, one of the messages I'd like to get across is it that those kind of things those experiences that they they're, they're so widespread yeah and it, it's it's very normal to see that yeah yeah Okay, thanks, Steve. Emma, have you got anything to add here? Yeah, I certainly agree. Masking is something that we're seeing on a regular basis, as Steve was talking about before. And I think masking is one of the most challenging ones to kind of manage because there might be kind of communications coming from school, like Steve said, of of, actually, they're okay, they're fine, they're socialising, they're doing all right. But what we tend to find with what lots of the children and young people that we meet is in order to do that, they're really digging deep, yeah. you know, in order to be able to Just exhausted at the end of yeah. it, yeah. yeah. And it's like, I need that outlet somewhere to be able to manage that. I think also other kind of common things that we see is often um, like an explosion of, of kind of feelings that seem to come from nowhere, which I suppose can be can be deemed as masking. But also for lots of our the young people that, that we meet, for them, it might be something as that's a trigger so it could be that it's been building over a long period of time or it can be something and and I see this quite a lot with the young people that we work with it can be words certain words can be a trigger for them or a certain person or a certain sensory environment can create that I suppose the important bit for us as adults is unpicking that a little bit investigating a little bit more observing monitoring trying to see where the common themes are around maybe some of those behavior presentations that you might be seeing on a regular yeah. basis as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so... And I think, sorry, can I just, just, yeah, to add, just, just, sorry, just, just, just to add to that. I think, I think that, that, that's really, that's really key to kind of the stepping back and reflecting on what we're seeing. Um, but when, I mean, when parents, when carers, when staff are in those situations, it can be difficult for them to almost, step back and 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 do that but that's yeah. that's such a, that's such a key part of the work that we do because like we like we've said the communication is that they are communicating something so it's our job to find what they're communicating what is it is it is it a need to escape is it sensory overload you know we talk about the different functions is it is it for that connection do they do yeah. they need that connection with 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 uh, that caregiver um so whilst emotions can, can be high and it can create, you know, feelings of um, not knowing where to go next, actually the the important thing is to step back and try and, you know, do that problem solving yeah, as well. Yeah, a bit of investigating to get to the bottom of the why of it, I guess. Okay, so when yeah. we look at those things you mentioned in your last answer, could you offer any strategies to help support parents and carers who are facing similar situations? I think it's the it's the analysis bit that's really important. We use, and, and I've, used, we've, I've used this in education settings, but I've also used these in home settings, we call them ABC charts. 
Um, and sometimes mm. we, I also talk about like the iceberg analogy sometimes. I'm certainly a visual learner and I'm a visual thinker. I need to get things down on paper in order to piece my ideas and me thinking together. One strategy that I recommend is um, drawing a big iceberg on a piece of paper. If you can't, you might just have a scrap of paper. At the tip of the iceberg, just write down all the behaviours that you're seeing. So it might be, they might be physical, they might be externalising behaviours that are quite, that we can see and are quite obvious. So it might be some of those big kind of physical responses. It might be crying, but there might be some internalising behaviours as well, which might be that kind of withdrawing, taking themselves off to quiet spots. Um, And then underneath kind of that, kind of that iceberg idea of there's more, a lot more going on on underneath the surface, exploring that further. In my head, I always think to myself, explore what was happening from a sensory perspective to start with. What's happening with the sensory world around them? Is there something that could be overstimulating or understimulating? And then I pose the question, what was the expectation in the moment? So did they understand the verbal instruction? We know that lots of kids with neurodevelopmental conditions, they have difficulties with processing information verbally. You know, was there a, a string of words that came came out that maybe were difficult to process? Yeah. Could we have chunked our instructions a little bit more uh, It kind of and made it a bit more, bit more defined for them? And I suppose by getting it on a piece of paper as a parent, you're analysing it, but you're doing it through kind of taking part in an activity where you can see it as well. Yeah. Sometimes just getting it on a piece of paper clarifies your thinking of why behaviours might be happening. And then when we know the why, we can then do the what do we do about it then? Yeah. Uh, But it's about establishing the why bit first, which can be really, really tricky to do. Yeah, it can. And I think um, just sort of kind of a basic, basic kind of understanding around the functions of behaviour, which is what Emma has been talking about. Um, I think the... So sensory and, you know, is it hyposensitive, which means uh, the young person's not getting enough sort of sensory stimulation from from their environment. So do we need to give more? Is it hypersensitive, which is, you know, it's just too much. There's too much going on uh, from a sensory perspective. So I need to kind of display this behavior to just avoid that particular activity or whatever's going on. Um, so we've got that. We've got connection seeking. We've got the um, tangible to gain something. It all depends on how that young person is able to kind of communicate their needs. But I think one of the key things um, when we're looking, if it's so, if we, if we've got sort of, I don't know, an increase in um, the severity of the incident uh, of the behaviours that we're seeing, the frequency, the duration, those kind of things. The first thing that we need to be looking at is sort of the medical side as well. You know, we the, we, we can put the greatest um, strategies in place whereby in an education setting, they go to the sensory room, you know, twice an hour. And, but if actually it, the underlying cause is um, pain, that we're, we're not meeting that need. It's almost like um, having a paracetamol for an abscess you know ultimately that's not that's maybe covering it a little bit but that's not going to do the job in the uh, in the long term so um yeah I, I think also also well whilst we're looking at the the why and stepping back and the um analyzing of the incident it's also how we are in that incident as well you know ha- children that aren't able to regulate themselves need a caregiver someone alongside them who is regulated to demonstrate that at the same time so when you're alongside them are you regulated 
which can be really difficult. You know, there's situations where that is really difficult to be regulated in highly intense situations. Yeah. But yeah. Um, we're, if we're dis, if we if we're dysregulated, then we're not going. We're going to really struggle to regulate um, the child as well. Okay, that's great there. Thank you very much. So um, can you tell us a bit about internal and external behaviour, what this looks like and how it differs between boys and girls? I think the boys and girls bit is the really important one. Yeah. Um, often, and not and not all the time, and I think this is where we've got to be really mindful that um, obviously everybody's behaviour pre- presentation is unique to them because everybody's experiences of the world around them, of their own neurodevelopmental condition is unique to them as well. But we sometimes see kind of, I suppose, common threads maybe of behaviours and the female-male presentation can sometimes be slightly different. But like I said, not for all. So... For, for We see lots and lots of girls, particularly our females with ADHD. Um, we see a lot of masking, as Steve was talking about earlier on. We see a lot of internalised anxieties. Um, I've worked with a number of girls, um, young girls kind of at primary school age, right the way through up until kind of early adulthood, with um, behaviours that might be deemed kind of controlling of certain situations or certain things. So that might be things like controlling of food, so we might see some internal behaviours that centre around diet, restricting of diet or overeating as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also see my internalised behaviours might be centred around high levels of anxiety yeah. um, that kind of um, maybe aren't vocalised, but they're, they're, they're kind of sitting there, sitting with those anxieties. And then we've got our externalised behaviours and they're the ones that you can see. So they're often your big ones. Yeah. They're often physical ones and externalising behaviour might be a big behaviour that's very physical, where a child might hurt themselves or the, the others around them or things around them as well. Um, but an externalising behaviour might also be a child that's really, really upset, really in the depths of their emotions as yeah. well. And I think what when we talk about emotions, it's being mindful that we can experience emotions on different grading scales. You know, a person who has lost control because of their angry is feeling a big emotion. But I've worked with kids that when they're overexcited, it's the same sized emotion as an angry feeling. It's a, still a really, really big feeling. Yeah. Um, it's just a different feeling. So I suppose it's about it's about recognizing what's the size of the feeling that the child's expressing. Um, and if it's an overwhelming one, then it's one of our big feelings um, that yeah. is sometimes externalised through our physical behaviours. OK, there's some really good stuff there. So, Steve, have you got anything you want to add there at all? No, I, th- I think just going back to the um, the comment about the, the boys and the girls, what, what, what research has found is that it takes, it pro- generally, it takes longer to get that diagnosis for for a girl than a boy because because of the external behaviors that are masked you know the girls are more likely to be taken under the wing of of peers and they just learn to adapt to be within within that group um so yeah I, i think but what comes with that is further and further along the line that 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 bias, that judgment, that label will come with 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 boys at a younger age, but also girls who at an older age are struggling to sort of understand, you know, where, where they fit in the world, and 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 that's that that's again a challenge for us. It's yeah. a challenge for us in terms of trying to help young girls 
to understand and, and, and be okay with, you know, the fact that, that they, they think a little bit differently and see the world differently, you know. Um, that That's the goal, isn't it? That's the goal. And there's a lot of work for us to do um, as services, um, but yeah, it, the the diagnosis time, I, I, I find it, I, it it's an interesting um, sort of re- research that's taken place, really, because the the external behaviours that we see are so different between boys and girls generally. Okay, thanks for your answers there. Um, so going on to our next question now, and I know from time to time that I might use some language that isn't helpful with my children. And, you know, in the heat of the moment, it's it's unfolding, and I'll scold myself for it afterwards. Um, but at that time, you know, when I'm in a rush or there's chaos commencing in the house, like any parent, I might say the wrong thing. And so how can we as parents use more positive language around our children to not only help improve the situation at that time that might be unfolding, but also to help, you know, empower our children rather than chastising them? I think a really big thing that I picked up from that question, Claire, was parents um, are people, aren't they? Yeah. And you know, when you think Humans. we all yeah. get it wrong, you know, yeah. as professionals, we can be trained into the kind of uh, degree, but actually we still get things wrong. Yeah. And I think when it, it's, uh, it's accepting that we get things wrong sometimes. And when we, we call it rupture and repair. So if there's a rupture, so something's not gone quite right, or we've had a fallout, or we've had a difficult situation, the importance is the repair. Yeah. Um, and you know, and the, um, and actually, it's accepting that sometimes there will be those ruptures in our relationships. If they're consistently happening, then we need to kind of change the way that we're kind of managing that, I suppose. Yeah. But the one-off ruptures, the strength of the repair is really important, and I think that's something that we kind of need to take take kind of a hold of as well. And think about that. Um, And then I also think from the perspective of like a strategy, I always use the use use terms that include the what you want to see the child doing as opposed to what you don't want to see them doing. We can really quickly fall into the trap of don't run. Don't do that. Um, Don't eat tea like that. Don't hurt your sister. Don't do this. Don't do that. And we use the don't phrase before the kind of then the labeled behavior. For a lot of kids, this is all children, not just children with neurodevelopmental conditions. It's that classic. When somebody says, don't do something, you can't help but want to do it. (laughs) So I always use the example Yeah. You know, when you go to a restaurant and they put a really hot plate in front of you and they say, don't touch it, it's hot. Straight away. <laughs> touch Straight it. away. Uh, yeah, there's no chance I'm not going to touch that. Yeah. And that's me as an adult. <laughs> when you use that don't phrase ahead of a, then a behavior, often what happens is they're going to do it anyway. Yeah. So it's sometimes just about changing the language around a little bit and using the, the language of the behavior that we want to see. Okay. So rather than saying, you know, and don't throw your coat on the floor, it might be hang your coat up on the hook, please. Um, it's really difficult to do and it definitely takes practice, but it's just thinking in the back of your mind, do's work better than don'ts. don'ts and yeah. I, that's my top strategy for so yeah. many families that I work with. I like that. I'm going to write that one down. Yeah, I, I, th- I think I think I, I think that's a great that that's a great example of how, you know, just just a little example of how we can change the way a lot of our children experience a lot of guilt, a lot of shame with the behaviours that they 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 display so actually what we need to do is we need to if we need you know sometimes challenging that behavior is appropriate but it's the behavior it's not the person it's not the young person that we're 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 challenging so it might be the um you know if they say have a major upset 
no, you've not made me upset, but the behavior that happened, it, it hurt or what, what, whatever yeah. it is. So we're focusing on the behavior, not, not the, the young person yeah. and kind of, um, yeah, yeah. Great. Okay. So moving on to our next question now, um, I thought it might be quite good to look at some real life examples, um, you know, where we can see where the child started on their journey, what strategies were put in place, any bumps in the road and what the outcome was. Um, We know that the way themes and triggers can present quite different, you know, from primary through to secondary. And so I think it's quite important if we can you know, give examples of both primary and secondary age children here, if possible. Yeah, so, I mean, my experiences are probably slightly different um, to others because of the work that I do, you know, working in our children's homes and uh, in our schools. But um, we've, so what, what, when, when I heard this question, my mind um, very quickly went to a a nine-year-old that we were working with who was really struggling with um, bedtime routine. Um just really didn't feel safe in the bedroom, really struggled to understand when bedtime was and all of these things that are quite, can be quite normal, you know, for, um, for children who are neurodivergent, that understanding of what the key things that happen almost to get me ready for that, for, for, for bedtime. So we did some, we did some work with the carers and, you know, it was a great piece of work, but you know, it was tiring. It was, there was a lot of ups and downs, um, but the, the kind of things that we did, you know, now and next boards, you know, helping them to understand what the what the next thing was. So, you know, tea time, uh, then you're going to go and play a game or watch tea, whatever it is, and have an activity, spend time with uh, a trusted member of staff. Um, and then thinking about environmentally, the, the different things that we can do as well to help prepare for, for that bedtime. So maybe changing from full full on lights to soft lighting and drawing curtains. So almost that's another visual cue uh, to say this, this is what we're preparing for. This is going to help to understand what the next, um, the next um, part of your routine is. Um, So that, that really worked and it takes time. And you you know, when when a child doesn't feel safe, you've got to create that safety somewhere. Um, So actually, providing consistency, providing predictability, structure, in turn provide safety for that young person. So it can it can take time. Um but yeah it's um it, it, it's just thinking about how we can create that predictable routine to to maintain safety and containment. Okay Emma have you got anything to add here? Yeah, so I was thinking um, of a, it was a secondary school age child, actually, that we'd worked uh, really closely with the family. Um, It ended up being a bit of a success story, which was great, because what we found was um, it was a girl. She was going into uh, transitioning from year 10 into year 11. Big, you know, big jumps in academic, you know, that that very difficult time. Lots of difficulties centering around hormones and puberty and all of that that's thrown into the mix for our teenagers as well. 
And what we were seeing with her behaviour was just significant withdrawal. So she was quite a confident girl, kind of when she went from moving from primary to secondary, really confident, lots and lots of friends, and um, kind of was was managing the kind of the world of school really, really well. And then she moved into year 11. And I think it was the expectations of learning. Things just got really, really hard. So much pressure uh, at that best... time, isn't they? On, oh, on them. so yeah. much. Yeah, as, alongside the significant life changes that puberty brings yeah. to you as well. And she just really struggled with those transitions. And what we saw was she went from being a very bubbly um, young person to a very withdrawn young person. Actually, some of the behaviours that we we saw were quite concerning in the sense that she was she was shutting down from people, she was hiding away. Uh, there was moments where she was kind of hurting herself because she was becoming frustrated with herself as well. And what we learned very quickly, and this was through conversations with her therapeutic intervention, but also working closely with the parents and the school and doing some observations around that, was not only was it the expectation of learning really difficult, this girl had been diagnosed on the autistic spectrum, but there had been no other assessments for any other neurodevelopmental conditions. And what we know is that so many of the neurodevelopmental conditions run alongside each other. Yeah. So uh, we call it co-occurrence. And what we found with this girl after we'd done a little bit more kind of observed of the behaviours was alongside the autistic spectrum condition, there was a co-occurring ADHD um, there as well. And what we were finding was as she was going into year 11 and expectations of learning and storing, remembering information, being able to plan and organise yourself a little bit more because the expectation is at that age you can, you can remember the things that you need to bring in for each lesson. And if you forget them, then you'll know what you need to do to find what you need. All of those executive function skills are impacted if you've got ADHD. So we did a little bit of work with school, with parents around understanding executive functions, but the key to it all was helping her understand her executive functions. And once she understands this stood, this is something that I is an area of challenge for me, but this is what I need to do about it. She kind of gained a self-awareness and that self-awareness was like the release that she needed. Yeah. It was like, right, I know that actually in a lesson, I find it really difficult to remember verbal instructions. So this is the strategy I need to help me. Yeah. And it was using her working partners in the classroom, working with teacher assistants to support her as well. And what we found was that self-awareness, that recognition of what she needed brought her back out of that kind of, um, I suppose that's the shell that she'd put herself in. Yeah, she'd put herself in that shell. Her with knowledge, hadn't you, and understanding yeah. sort of thing, you know, so she felt empowered again, I guess. Yeah, and she didn't feel like there was something wrong, yeah. you know, which I think that's she felt because she didn't understand it. It didn't make sense to her. She thought there was something wrong. And actually, there's nothing wrong with ADHD. Oh. You've got nothing wrong. You might have challenges in areas of your learning or areas of your interactions or regulation, but actually it shouldn't stop you from achieving. And it's just about finding the right things that help you to achieve, I suppose. And and that's where she was. And, and yeah, turned she she kind of came came back and was fantastic. Uh, yeah, developed confidence again and did really well. Some great examples there. Thanks to both of you. Um so um next question now. It's something I hear an awful lot about from parents and carers, and I'm sure you guys have heard it as well. Um, and that is the challenges that school can sometimes bring. And also the relationships between school and parents becoming distressed. Um so do you guys have any advice for parents on how they can build some good relationships here and also help school to support a child um so that they can regulate their env- emotions? within the school environment I guess yeah um I think I think I think the first thing is to there's got to be an awareness that 
you know, behaviours change from environment to environment. So the environment at home, you know, a, a young person is going from a safe, predictable environment to an environment which is anything but a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you, if you think about all of the things before a child even gets to school that could potentially go wrong, that's unpredictable, you know, the, uh, you know, cho- choosing what, what cereal um, to have, cho- uh, having to put uniform on that can be really uncomfortable, um, being late, you know, traffic, all of these things before a young person even gets to school. And then they get welcomed into this busy uh, environment, which is just full of unpredictability. You know, we we go into a school and we we don't know what's going to happen next. Um, So there's an understanding that that is going to impact on behaviour. However, I think at the same time, we want to create a safe environment within the school that the young person also has at, at home. So we need to use the information that that parent has you know they know yeah. they know the young person better than better than the school staff so we've got to try and create relationship where there's collaborative working so i think the fir- the first part of call for me would be to get to know the teacher you know yeah. the teacher is the one who should be spending the time with the young person so and then create or make meetings you know Get pick up the phone, just have those conversations, maintain good communication, yeah, communication, find out what's going on. If they've had a difficult more, if the, yeah, if the, if they've had a really difficult morning, you know, how do we make it a bit more comfortable when they get in? So actually, they don't go to the lessons; they go and spend a bit of time with a pastoral member of staff or whoever it is. Yeah. So. And on the flip that'd side be my tip to create those good relationships. Yeah, and on the flip side of that, I've, we've done some podcasts uh, in the well, we did a podcast a while ago, which focused on you know the building of relationships with with school between school and home and everything like that. And somebody said on that also about not only calling home, you know, when something has gone sort of not so great that day, but also if something's gone really good as well, because I think parents are often quite wait, like, yeah. you know, if the phone rings and it's school, like, oh, what's happened now sort of thing. But if they get a little bit of a communication happened, that actually yeah. something really good's happened today, you know, that can be a really big, big way mm. of developing that positive uh, relationship, I think, as well. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with that. I think what tends to happen and and the conversation that we have with lots of our parents, and this starts from our little ones. I work with little uh, little ones and I've got a a mum who attends a nursery and she knows what day her child's had by the facial expression of the adult that's been with him all day. Yeah. And she and from the age of kind of three, four, she she has this this kind of knot in her stomach when she comes to pick him up. Um, and and something that we've worked on with her is around and, and with the setting. Uh, and, and this is where it's important with for uh, kind of adults working with children is what's the best way to communicate with a parent yeah. that's not in front of all of the other parents that is aware it might could a text message do it? It's also what's the impact of having that negative conversation with parent um, on the child as well. You yeah. know, the child stood there like next to the teacher after having a rubbish day at school yeah. and then the teacher's then telling the parents how rubbish they've been at school as well. Yeah. It just, it, it kind of feeds that negativity. So, you know, can it be, can it be explained in, in other ways? But also like you said, Claire, also let's focus on the good stuff. What's happened that's gone really yeah. well? Because the in six hours, something's bound to have gone well. There must have <laughs> been some, some good, good stuff. Yeah. 
absolutely. And it's drawing on the positives as well. <laughs> so moving on. Um, Emma will know because she's done a few of these podcasts now. I sometimes quite like to finish with some quick fire top tips or a final positive thought from our experts. So I'll leave it to you guys to decide which of those you would like to uh, go for to end today's session. I think a big one for me, and I think this is something, and I was only speaking actually, it was at a, a conference last week with, with a Slack, um, and it was a conference for parents. And one of the things that we were talking about was Sometimes we use phrases like challenging behavior or negative behavior or hard behavior. And actually what it is for lots of our children, it's dysregulated behavior. And dysregulation is when I'm just not in a good place right now and I can't regulate my chimp. The chimp inside of me is taking control and I can't keep it in check and I can't regulate it. And actually, I think if we can turn the language around a little bit and think about it from that perspective, rather than seeing it as a challenge, let's see this child as dysregulated. What can we do to support them to regulate? And I think sometimes for us as adults, when you see it from that perspective and you have that in the back of your mind, rather than this is hard, this is challenging. If we use that dysregulated narrative, there's something that shifts your thinking around how you then manage yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that would be my, my top tip, maybe changing language to kind of help us as adults to reframe how we see it and uh, which then allows us to reframe how we manage it, I think. Great. OK, thanks, Emma. Over to you, Steve. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I think that reframing of language is, is really important because, you know, we, we hear a lot about kind of the, the, the doing it for attention, you know, and attention sudden attention very quickly has a uh, very negative sort of connotation about it, doesn't it? Oh, they're doing it for yeah. attention. Actually, you know, I've I've said it I've said it throughout the, throughout the um, podcast. It's about connection. It's about the need for connection with with um, with the caregivers. Um, so the, the the language that we're using is re- is really important to think about and kind of change and adapt. I think my 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 top tip, and it takes time, is providing consistency predictability structure routine where we can um and it and it takes time for 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 people to kind of get get to understand what that looks like but how are we going to do it are we going to use visual aids are we going to use now and next boards what can we do to provide that safety and containment for the young person brilliant okay thanks ever so much for that guys And so that just about brings us to the end of another fantastic episode of Sensational. I'd like to say a massive thank you to Emma and Steve for their time today and also to all our wonderful listeners. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please do give us a like or share. Um, You might also be interested to find out more about the free webinars and resources available on our website. To access these resources, please visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash resources or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. So thanks again for joining us today, and we hope you can join us for another episode of Sensational soon. Bye for now.